American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about a man whose life was quite a bit of an enigma, which is fitting because he was considered the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. Yes, one writer called Hitchcock a straightforward middle-class Englishman who just happened to be an artistic genius. One remarkable thing about Hitchcock was that while he was nominated for five Oscars and many other awards for directing, he never won any of them. He was awarded the American Film Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award in 1979 and lots of other awards, but he never took an Oscar home. And when he was awarded the AFI honor, he joked that it must mean he was going to die soon. Which wasn't far from the truth. He died just one year later. But let's not jump to the ending. Let's build things up a little. All right, we need some suspense. So every story has a beginning and a middle and an end. So let's go back to the beginning. You cue the dream sequence intro music, you know. You're so weird. I know. That's why you love me. Anyhow, Alfred Hitchcock was born in 1899 in the East End of London, England. His parents were devout Catholics, and he went to Catholic schools run by Jesuits. His father was a grocer, and young Alfred's first job was working in the family business until his father died when he was just 14. At that point, he went to work as an estimator for the Henley Telegraph and Cable Company. And it was during this time that he developed an interest in the film industry, going to see films and reading trade journals from America. He got his start in filmmaking in 1920, drawing sets for films produced in England. He was actually a very good visual artist, and he himself drew the simple line caricature that became associated with him, especially as the opening of his eventual television series, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His first big directing gig was in 1923 on a film no one remembers called Always Tell Your Wife, but he only got the job because the director originally on the project got sick and so he couldn't complete it. And while no one remembers Always Tell Your Wife, Hitchcock certainly remembered it because he got a wife out of it. Right. One of the writers on the film was Alma Reville. They became close and would get married in 1926 at the beautiful Brompton Oratory in London. But before they got married, Alma took instruction and came into the church. Yes, Alfred was serious about his faith and Alma loved him enough that she became Catholic. Alma would become the most important collaborator in Hitchcock's life, and that very much included his films. In July of 1928, the Hitchcock's only child, a daughter named Patricia, was born. So now he was a family man, and his career was taking off. Through the 1920s and 30s, he directed Pleasure Garden, The Lodger, 39 Steps, and other films, until Hollywood came calling while he was in the middle of making his 1938 thriller, The Lady Vanishes. Which we just watched recently. Yes, I had never seen it before, and it is definitely a classic. It's actually listed at 35 on the list of the top 100 British films of all time. A list which, by the way, also includes The 39 Steps at number four. Right, but that list doesn't include Monty Python's Holy Grail, so can we really trust it? Yeah, I think so. Okay, fine. So in 1940, the Hitchcocks moved to Hollywood after Alfred was signed to a contract by big-time Hollywood producer David Selznick. Their first project together was supposed to be about the sinking of the Titanic, but Selznick couldn't find a boat to sink, so they did Rebecca instead. It was a good change because Rebecca won Best Picture and was the first of Hitchcock's five unsuccessful nominations for Best Director. An interesting side note, 
Rebecca was adapted from a book by the French writer Daphne du Maurier, and so was the final film Hitchcock directed in Britain, Jamaica Inn. Side note, Jamaica Inn was also the vehicle that launched the career of Maureen O'Hara, but we'll leave that story for another time. So, it was a bit of a fitting connection between the two eras of his career, and it didn't take long for his career to take off and to establish himself as one of the biggest names in Hollywood. No, it didn't. He went from success to success, and before long, films were publicized with his name, not just the film's name. So, like Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train, or Alfred Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder. People wanted to see Hitchcock films, not just films. There were a number of reasons for that. His movie-making style included innovative use of lighting and shadows, unexpected camera angles and points of view, a few innovative techniques that we would consider old hat nowadays, and storytelling techniques that upended Hollywood conventions. Exactly. One example of that is the climactic chase scene in North by Northwest, which shows Cary Grant being chased in broad daylight in an open field by a crop duster airplane. What was more standard and expected was a car chase, usually in a city, and usually at night. And he also frequently used MacGuffins to drive his plot. And a MacGuffin is? Well, a MacGuffin is an item that is very important to the characters in the film, but is unimportant to the audience. So, for instance, the cash that Janet Lee's character steals at the beginning of Psycho. It is what causes her to flee and end up at the Bates Motel, but then the cash is forgotten completely by the audience as the story unfolds. His films also frequently involved a story of mistaken or assumed identity with the wrong person being suspected of a crime and then having to run from both the police and the real bad guys. He would also upend conventional Hollywood storytelling by presenting the bad guys in a way that made the audience identify with them or sympathize at least a little with their plight. This approach came at least a bit from his Catholic upbringing. Yes, he once told the journalist Francois Truffaut, I don't think I can be labeled a Catholic artist, but it may be that one's early upbringing influences a man's life and guides his instinct. And that's very likely true. To Truffaut, he recalled one specific incident from his upbringing that had a profound impact on him. He said, when I was no more than six years of age, perhaps younger, now he said this in his own way, so it took about three times as long as it's going to take me to say it, I did something that my father considered worthy of reprimand. I don't recall the particular transgression, but at that tender age, it could hardly have been such a serious offense. My father sent me to the local constabulary with a note. The police officer on duty read it and then led me down a long corridor to a jail cell where he locked me in for what seemed like hours, which was probably five minutes. He said, This is what we do to naughty boys. I have never forgotten those words. I can still hear the clanging of the cell door behind me. I can imagine that would leave an impression, especially on a kid that young who only just barely began to grasp moral reasoning, responsibility, and guilt. He also told Truffaut that through his Catholic schooling, a Catholic attitude was indoctrinated into me. I now have a conscience with lots of trials over belief. And regarding the Jesuits, he said that they gave him a consciousness of good and evil that both are always with me. In short, he had an awareness of the fallen human condition, the complexities of being good and bad and that there really is no one who is all good or all bad. And that's the interesting bit to me. I'm a fan of Walker Percy and Flannery O'Connor, two American authors known for their dark humor and an almost absurd treatment of their corrupt characters. It seems that there's a bit of the same Catholic dark humor way of seeing the world that those two are known for in Hitchcock. They present the grotesque in life in a way that you almost want to laugh at its absurdity and feel bad for its victims and perpetrators alike. Hitchcock pretty much said that. He was asked why he didn't make comedies, and he insisted, 
that all of his films were comedies. Yes, the tragic comedy of life in the fallen state. Flannery O'Connor laughed at her own grim stories that seemed to have no redemption and no lightness unless you really understood what she was doing. The Jesuit father, Sean Salai, in an article about Hitchcock, which he penned for America Magazine, and which we link to in the show notes at sqpn.com history, wrote, Although I have never enjoyed horror movies myself, I enjoy Hitchcock. While horror films depress me, Hitchcock amuses and enlightens and sometimes moves me. He treats unspeakable things with tact, humor, and style in a way that is much imitated by modern filmmakers, without being recaptured. I agree with him. Yeah. So this is what's going on in the flawed characters of such classics as Vertigo, North by Northwest, The Birds, Rear Window, Marnie, Rope, The Man Who Knew Too Much, To Catch a Thief, and so many others. Well, let's not forget his television series. Right, of course. For 10 years between 1955 and 1965, he produced a weekly television series, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and then The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, which featured the same sort of storytelling his films were known for, but pared down for just a one-hour episode. He directed 17 episodes personally, but he introduced each episode in his droll, slow English with a short description of a principle that would be emphasized in the episode, and then he would give a postscript frequently as a means of tying up loose ends and giving the ways in which the bad guys really did receive their just desserts. This series and its very distinctive opening, featuring the line-drawing caricature of his rotund profile— Which, again, he drew back in the 30s in England. Right. Along with the tune Funeral March of a Marionette— were my introduction to Hitchcock. I loved the twists and turns of the episodes, which I watched on rerun when I was a kid. Now, Hitch's only explicitly Catholic film is I Confess, the 1953 film which sees a murderer confess his crime to a priest, and then the priest, who during the confession tells the man to go and confess to the police, becomes the chief suspect in the crime due to his past relationship with the victim. The priest cannot tell the police what he knows because he cannot break the seal of confession. We won't spoil the ending, but it is classic Hitchcock. When discussing I Confess with a reporter, he said, We Catholics know that a priest cannot disclose the secret of the confessional, but the Protestants, the atheists, and the agnostics all say, Ridiculous. No man would stay silent and sacrifice his life for such a thing. Hitchcock knew the priest couldn't and wouldn't, and thus had the hook for a truly brilliant film. But that was about it as far as his public discussion of his Catholic faith. He grew up going to Mass faithfully, his wife converted before they were married, his daughter was raised Catholic, and there's no evidence that he ever abandoned the faith completely. Now, that's not to say there aren't questions about his faithfulness and moral uprightness. One major biographer alleges that Hitchcock utterly left the church and would not have anything to do with it toward the end of his life. We'll talk about that in a moment, but first we'll look at another major question, and that was about his treatment of actresses, particularly those who are known as Hitchcock blondes. Yes. Now, to be clear, there were plenty of non-blonde actresses in Hitchcock's dozens of films over his 50 years of directing, but it seemed that all of his major works featured a blonde leading lady, Grace Kelly, Kim Novak, Doris Day, Ingrid Bergman, Eva Marie Saint, Janet Leigh, and Tippi Hedren most prominent among them. Some say he had an unhealthy obsession with blondes, and there are even allegations that he made a terribly inappropriate pass at Hedron during the making of Marnie. 
There's no evidence it went anywhere, but reporters and biographers who love scandal, especially in Hollywood, kept the story alive. He did acknowledge that he would intentionally cast blondes for some roles, but the reason was that blonde hair had the visual effect on the screen that he was going for, especially in his black and white movies like Psycho. So I'm not sure it's fair to call it an unhealthy obsession rather than just a very particular director crafting his films. But we'll leave that subject there. Now, in Psycho, actually, the choice had an additional meaning. At the outset, Janet Lee is blonde and she's wearing white. But then she steals $40,000 and runs off. And to help herself hide, she actually dyes her hair brunette and starts wearing black. So having a blonde female lead was a very important part of the point he was making in Psycho. I actually didn't pick up on that when I saw it, but that is a very powerful image. I wonder how many more films he did something like that that people just don't pick up on consciously anyhow. Probably quite a bit. He was an incredible manipulator of the subtle things. And according to the Internet Movie Database, he had a lot of opportunity. Hitchcock has 65 movies to his credit as a director. That includes some uncompleted projects and early films in Britain that he directed before he was really making Hitchcock films. And how many of them have you seen? 28 of them. I've seen seven, so I've got some catching up to do. We'll definitely work on that. Okay, good. So Alfred Hitchcock kept working into the 1970s, but due to failing health, his output slowed. And by the end of the 1960s, his great works were behind him. In 1972, his beloved wife Alma suffered a debilitating stroke, which made it nearly impossible for her to walk. But she had been so important in his life, such a life partner, that when he was awarded the American Film Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award in 1979, he said, I beg permission to mention by name only four people who have given me the most affection, appreciation, and encouragement, and constant collaboration. The first of the four is a film editor. The second is a scriptwriter. The third is the mother of my daughter, Pat. And the fourth is as fine a cook as ever performed miracles in a domestic kitchen and their names are Alma Reville. In his last year or two, he was visited frequently by two priests, Father Tom Sullivan and Father Mark Henninger, S.J. It seems that he had been away from the church for a time, and there is some suggestion that his time away had to do with the changes to the Mass after Vatican II. Which, if true, while it is never permissible to miss Mass, it is understandable that someone with Alfred Hitchcock's sense of aesthetics, the mighty struggle between good and evil, the rise and fall of a life-and-death drama— would struggle mightily with many of the things happening within the liturgy in the 1970s. And there it is again, the complexities of real life. If it is true that he stopped going to Mass for a time, it probably wasn't out of a rejection of the faith, but rather a deep confusion and a sense that the church had changed in ways that made no sense. So thank God for these priests who were willing and able to go meet him where he was and help him come back fully into the fold. One of those two priests, Father Mark Henninger, S.J., wrote an article in 2012 in the Wall Street Journal called Alfred Hitchcock's Surprise Ending. He told about the experience of going to see Hitch in his home during those last months. Father Henninger wrote that he and Father Sullivan would go and chat with Hitchcock in his living room before one of them would hear Hitchcock's confession— then the assemblage would go to the study where Alma would be waiting, and there they would celebrate the Holy Sacrifice. Hitchcock would participate in the Mass quietly, responding in the old Latin he learned as a child. Father Henninger reports that after receiving Holy Communion, Alfred Hitchcock would remain quiet for a time, with tears streaming silently down his face. So deeply did he understand the reality of what was going on. The wrong man hunted down and punished for crimes he did not commit, accepting that punishment on behalf of the guilty out of love. 
Yes, the most exquisite example of the narrative device that made him a hugely successful filmmaker. Hitchcock had become a U.S. citizen in 1955, and in 1962, he had declined the honor of being made a commander of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II. He said at the time that he did not believe it did justice to his contribution to British culture. But at the end of 1979, a greater honor was offered, a knighthood. This time he accepted, and in early 1980, though he was unable to travel to London to receive the accolade, he received the honor in his home. When asked why it took so long for the queen to offer this honor, he quipped, I guess she forgot. But he would not be able to go by Sir Alfred Hitchcock for long. He died peacefully of kidney failure on April 29, 1980. His funeral mass was at Good Shepherd Catholic Church. Alma, his beloved wife of 54 years, would die two years later. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. And support the work of SQPN. Your support at sqpn.com give helps make sure American Catholic History and all of the StarQuest podcasts remain available. To learn more about Alfred Hitchcock, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com history. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on social media at facebook.com slash American Catholic History or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest. Good evening.